The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Lionel Shriver on if Western populations would fight to defend their homeland in the way that we see the Ukrainians have, Kate Andrews on the real reason behind the rise of the cost of living, and Nicholas Farrell asks if the war in Ukraine will boost popularism. First up, Lionel Shriver. Why are so few Americans willing to defend their country? For many of us war voyeurs watching the news with a glass of sherry, admiration of the little engine that could Ukrainian fighters is underwritten by unease. As families escape to safety, plenty of feisty Ukrainians are remaining behind to battle a far more powerful aggressor. And they're not all men, either. The question nags, then. In the same circumstances... Would we stick around to defend our homelands? Or would we cut our losses and get out? Earlier this month, that's precisely what a Quinnipiac poll asked Americans. Some 7% said don't know. But an astonishing 52% of Democrats predicted that they'd skedaddle. Among Republicans a full quarter would carpool with the high-tailing, to-hell-with-this, Democrats, while 68% would stand their ground, or think they would. Among all respondents, 55% would stay and fight, while 38% would flee. Scaled up, that would be 125 million Yanks, storming from the land of the no-longer-free and the home of the not-especially-brave, all at once. Quite a stampede. As Matthew Hennessy observed in the Wall Street Journal, these answers are especially surprising because nothing compelled these folks to tell the truth. People often deceive pollsters, especially when an honest reply seems socially unacceptable. That's why Donald Trump's victory in 2016 caught pollsters so unawares. Many Trump supporters kept their ostensibly odious voting intentions to themselves. Those Quinnipiac respondents confronted only a pencil-pushing pollster, not a Russian tank crashing through their living room. Surely they'd have been tempted to lie to please, or to show a shred of self-respect. Jesus, they might at least have lied to themselves, imagining that, under duress, They'd rise to the occasion, even if this assumption entailed unwarranted optimism about the extent of their physical courage. Given the overtly unattractive nature of the admission, we're therefore obliged to regard the substantial proportion of the American citizenry who say that they would not fight to defend their country in the event of a military invasion by a foreign power as an expression of sincere self-knowledge. Ergo, under attack, 38% of Americans would pile their SUVs high 
and join foreshortening tailbacks headed for Canada or Mexico, while wealthier families would clamber onto private jets and zoom off to bunkers well-stocked with tinned pate in New Zealand. With big-picture peace having prevailed for more than 70 years, most of us Westerners have never been forced to decide whether to put our lives and bodily well-being on the line for our country's and compatriots. Recent immigrants are sometimes ardent converts to their adoptive lands. But the relationship to nation among the West's native-born tends to be passive and transactional. For many immigrants, the relationship is also more materially self-interested than emotional. Most of us figure vaguely that where we live is okay. The country provides us with more or less what we need. Our primary contribution to the collective national interest is money, which we hardly donate out of niceness, and which even in quantity can't compare to sacrificing a left leg. As for American Democrats, for years a goodly number have denounced their country as an irredeemable cesspit of systemic racism. Why would you risk a cut finger for such an awful place? much less a hole in the chest. And we're accustomed to our comforts. Watching Ukrainian snipers on TV, who a month ago might have been IT consultants or shoe repairmen, we think, ugh, they look cold. Why don't they wear gloves, preferably with silk liners and those little air-activated hand warmers? The filling in those sandwiches they're wolfing down is pale and fatty, and I far prefer whole grain bread. No colorful dash of rocket, not even mustard. And do these folks have a nice claret at the ready for the evening? How do they while away the long hours after dark without Amazon Prime? How can they sleep in a concrete sewer pipe? I can only nod off under a down duvet while listening to my whale song CD. In last autumn's The Dying Citizen, Victor Davis Hansen proposed that the Western concept of citizenship, with its balance of rights and obligations, has been steadily eroded. Globalization, mass unassimilated immigration, and the left's cultivation of self-disgust have steadily turned us into mere residents, with no fervent commitment to a shared culture and past. For plain old residents, country is a matter of convenience or accident. Nationality may confer a greater or lesser advantage, but it hardly calls up a passionate attachment or a sense of duty. Our jet-setting elites are dedicated not to nations but to ideologies, whose promotion is all talk. While Putin has been brainwashing Russians into a mindless patriotism, Our disavowal of patriotism has been equally mindless. We're demoting our countries to mere coordinates, mere patches on a map. We Westerners' dry, shrugging, uninvested relationships to our own countries may be the perceived weakness that most emboldens Putin. Truthfully, I've no idea how I would respond as an American if the U.S. were under attack. And if those poll respondents were honest with themselves, the results would have been 98%.
don't know. Extreme circumstances are prone to reveal things about character that are impossible to access in calmer times. The invasion of your home is apt to stir the primitive animal emotions conspicuously on display in Ukraine. There's no more ferocious a motivator than hatred. And there is such a thing. It bears little resemblance to whatever feeling underlies the mild verbal faux pas that's currently prosecuted as hate speech. Ukrainians repeatedly testify to journalists that they're not frightened, but angry. I have a temper like Mount Vesuvius, so maybe facing a vicious, unprovoked military usurpation. I'd be out in the streets, ragingly rat-a-tat-tatting with my M-16, alongside a bunch of Republicans, apparently, though some of those Democrats might surprise themselves. But I'm as soft and spoiled as anybody. So, for all I know, I'd instead be throwing a case of wine into a waiting SUV. That was Lionel Shriver. Next, it's Kate Andrews. Are you ready to take cold showers to do your bit for the war effort? Protesters in Berlin have been holding up placards suggesting they'd sooner do so than use Russia's gas. Boris Johnson has called on the British public to make similar sacrifices, solemnly telling us that we need to drop cheap Russian energy and accept that such a move will be painful. The government will spend billions to help ease that pain, he says, but none of us can afford to carry on like this for long. On the surface, it sounds like the start of an honest conversation, telling voters that the cost of living squeeze we're experiencing now has only just begun. Or might the PM be getting ready to blame Russia's war against Ukraine for price rises that were going to happen anyway? Just as it was difficult to disentangle the economic impact of Brexit and COVID, it's now tough to distinguish which price hikes are down to Putin's war and which are an inevitable economic consequence of the past two years. Oil prices might make for a straightforward case. The fluctuation of the price of a barrel, hitting a record peak of $130, is directly linked to the U.S.'s ban on Russian oil and much of the world's decision not to buy Urals. But little else is easy to explain. Managing without Russia's energy supplies will indeed cost Germany's economy dearly. It imported a staggering 32% of its gas from Russia in December, compared to Britain's 3%, and wants to reduce that by two-thirds over the next year. That will involve big sacrifices. But Britain's energy prices were skyrocketing before any economic sanctions were issued. The energy crunch, exacerbated by global economies coming back online after lockdowns, saw Ofgem hike April's energy price cap by 54%, while the energy price cap put dozens of companies out of business. By early February, Chancellor Rishi Sunak was announcing £9 billion worth of subsidies, targeted to 80% of households throughout the country. Higher prices would normally be hard to explain for a Tory party committed to keeping living costs low, but the war has changed the narrative in a number of ways, says one Tory MP. Not only is Partygate now out of the news, but the cost of living crunch can also now be blamed on something out of our control. Joe Biden has decided to adopt a similar strategy. He talks about Putin's price hike and told House Democrats last week that inflation is largely the fault of Putin, despite inflation hitting a 40-year high long before the sanctions began. 
It's not obvious that Americans are buying this. Biden's massive borrow-and-spend package was long seen as an inflationary risk, so much so that the goal of Sunak's budget in March last year was to make the UK economy robust enough to withstand Biden's money-printing machine. The Biden administration has had a boost in the polls thanks to swift and decisive action on Russia, but the economy hovered near the top of the list of voters' concerns before the sanctions, and there it remains. In Britain, inflation has been outpacing official forecasts for months and was expected to hit 7% even before Ukraine was invaded. One Secretary of State expects the headline rate to hit double digits before the end of the year. Then there are the costs wholly in the government's control, including the national insurance tax hike that comes into effect next month. The 2.5 percentage point rise was sold in the name of the COVID crisis. The announcement, which broke the Tory manifesto pledge not to raise taxes, was made last autumn, as Britain was coming out of the emergency phase of the pandemic. It was framed as providing money to help the NHS play catch-up on waiting lists. In truth, the money is long-term funding for the Prime Minister's social care plans, which protect the assets of the wealthy without a guaranteed addition of a single bed to the care system. Sunak will present a mini-budget next week. It was always going to be a challenge, even before war struck. Debt servicing payments are increasing by billions of pounds month by month as inflation takes its toll. Any space he was hoping to use for tax cuts was already dwindling due to rising energy costs, and he'll have to be more cautious still. Goldman Sachs predicts bills of £4,000 for the average household if Russia decides to cut off Europe's gas supplies completely. And he'll be under pressure from his own party and boss to frame this all in the friendliest terms possible. That, for Johnson and Biden, has meant blaming their economic woes on Russia. It might work, and no doubt Russia's war is a serious and increasing part of the problem. But rising prices aren't a recent phenomenon. They were being shaped by government decision-making long before sanctions hit. That was Kate Andrews. And finally, Nicholas Farrell. The war in Ukraine may benefit the populist right. Ever since Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, it's been widely assumed that Europe's right-wing populists are finished. Figures such as Marine Le Pen, Matteo Salvini and Viktor Orban have all been cast as Putin's useful idiots, defending his nefarious deeds because they saw him as a vital ideological ally. Now that Putin's craven cruelty can no longer be excused, it's argued time is up, both for their sordid dance with Putin and for them. The invasion has already done huge damage to populists all over the world who prior to the attack uniformly expressed sympathy for Putin, writes Francis Fukuyama in a recent essay. But what if this prevailing analysis is mistaken? Might war in Ukraine make right-wing populists even more popular. It is a conflict that exposes the difference between bad nationalism, the imperialistic kind expressed by Putin, and good nationalism, the patriotic kind expressed by Ukrainians. The desire to defend rather than impose one's country, its way of life and culture. The war puts the raison d'etre of most European right-wing populists, the defence of the nation-state, and national sovereignty back at the top of the political agenda, and it exposes the dishonesty of automatically branding such parties as anti-immigrant or anti-refugee. Poland, which is governed by the Nationalist Law and Justice Party, has taken in 1.9 million Ukrainian refugees, more than the rest of the world put together. They are given Polish social security numbers and the rights to school and welfare. 
Viktor Orban has been just as welcoming in Hungary, which has taken in 270,000 Ukrainians so far. He has kept the 85-mile border open, he said, because he trusts Hungarians to tell the difference between who is a migrant and who is a refugee. Yet last week, the European Parliament voted to impose economic sanctions on Poland and Hungary for violating basic European values, i.e. for being too nationalistic. In Poland's case, for its constitutional court's ruling last year that EU law should not take precedence over Polish law. So it is harder to portray uh, the rulers of Poland or Hungary as drawbridge up xenophobes when they are midway through such spectacular acts of generosity. Many commentators are already complaining that the only reason these refugees are accepted is because they are white. There may be some truth in that, but the main reason Ukrainians are being welcomed with open arms in Poland and Hungary is not to do with skin colour. It is because they pass the right-wing populist refugee test. Women and children are refugees. Single men are economic migrants. Take Salvini, so often cast as Italy's far-right firebrand. As Italy's interior minister in 2019, he was famed for his hard line on those arriving by boat from Africa. But he has now run a mercy mission to the Ukrainian border to bring back a coachload of refugees to Italy, where they will stay in hostels funded by the Lega, his party. He was recently in the Polish town of Prepsmil and agreed to hold a joint press conference with its mayor, who, though also a right-wing populist himself, really doesn't like Putin. There are said to be 350,000 refugees in Prepsmil, whose population is only 60,000. Little did Salvini know that it was a trap. The mayor produced from his jacket a T-shirt identical to the one that Salvini had worn on a visit to Moscow in October 2014, depicting Putin wearing a military beret above the caption, The Army of Russia. The mayor said Salvini should go and see the refugee centre to see what your friend Putin has done to the 50,000 a day crossing the border. With that, he was gone, leaving the chastised Salvini to face the TV film crews as the cameras rolled. All they wanted to know was if he condemned Putin's invasion. Certo, obvio, we condemn Putin, we condemn Russia's war, replied Salvini. A clip of the footage with Salvini's condemnation of Putin cut out went viral and was shared 4.7 million times. The wider point it made, of course, still stood. Salvini, who has forged a political career from declaring war on illegal immigration, had gone to Poland to help Ukrainian refugees. Take another Italian right-wing populist, Giorgio Malone, leader of Brothers of Italy and a Lega ally. Her party doesn't have close ties with the Kremlin, like his has had, but when Putin was re-elected in 2018, Maloney tweeted her compliments. She's now using the conflict to unreservedly condemn the Kremlin and amplify her theme about the distinction between economic migrants and refugees. For years we've been told this fairy tale about supposed refugees, boatloads of lone men in search of work, but normally, if there's a war, the men stay behind to fight and the women and children flee, she said.
things could prove harder for the French presidential hopeful Marine Le Pen, whose party received a 9.5 million euro Russian bank loan in 2014 to help finance her last presidential campaign in 2017. She has said that the invasion of Ukraine is absolutely indefensible, but a campaign leaflet of, uh, featuring a photo of her with Putin is a serious embarrassment. For now, though, if the polls are right, the war in Ukraine has not damaged her popularity. Her support has increased in the past fortnight, though not nearly as much as President Macron's. We may be waiting, therefore, some time for the hotly anticipated implosion of the populists. Polls suggest they are just as popular as ever. Moreover, it is precisely the strength of their core belief, love of one's country, that is being demonstrated by those fighting in the Ukraine. After all, how many people would die for the European Union? That was Nicholas Farrell. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week. Mm-hmm.